So a couple years ago at uh, Gen Con Indy, I was at the uh, men's room at the urinal taking care of my business, so to speak, and there was one of the fuck, sorry, one of the foam sword guys it, over right next to me dipping his foam mace into the urinal. So if you're a foam sword guy, you may be being whacked in the head with Pete. I'm Dan Elderman, and I am the Gamerati. Gamerati.com. It's good to be a gamer. This episode of The Tome Show is sponsored by Gamerati. It's good to be a gamer. And listeners like you, thanks for using The Tome's Amazon store. Hi, I'm Matt Getz, one of the writers on The Shadowfell, Gloomrod and Beyond, and you're listening to The Tome Show. Welcome to The Tome Book Club for March 2012. The Tome is a D&D news reviews and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm your co-host, Jeff Greiner. In each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related novel, spoilers be damned, in full book club style. And in this, in this month, our book was Brimstone Angels by Aaron M. Evans, who will be joining us later in the episode. And in case anybody wanted to join us for the next episode, Tracy, what is it? What's our next book? Our next book is Deathmark by Robert J. Schwab. All right, so should we go ahead and talk about Brimstone Angels here before we talk to uh, Aaron? Totally. Tell me about it. See? I, I understand you hated this book. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> so it's the story of two tiefling twins who are girls who are raised by a dragonborn. And they know how to fight. Well, one of them does. Well, the other one knows how to fight, too. Both do. She's described it. Throughout the whole thing is sort of bumbling whenever she tries to fight. That's why in chapter one she does the stupidest thing in the whole book, and that's make a, a, a deal with the devil. It is not the stupidest thing in the whole book. <laughs> if she doesn't make a deal with the devil, we don't have a book. That's absolutely true, and I and I and I I like where it goes. I like where the story is. I like where the relationship goes. I still don't. I'm still. I still go back and think about that choice, and it's like. Why would you do that? <laughs> like I have no. Listen, he knew. It's not he some, put it's... his arms around her. Uh huh. Whispered in her ear, didn't didn't he? I mean, come on, so, she's seventeen year old girl. So are, are are girls really that weak against the bad boy? No, not that weak. But you know, sometimes after you've just been, I can't say the word at by that other <laughs> guy, that other woman. Uh huh. And you and you walk into your sister who, sitting there. This other woman, this other woman who was going after her for you know you're a bad person, you make bad decisions, and so what's the first thing you do? You prove her right. You know what? No, <laughs> little bit. It, did, it didn't matter what she did. She could have decided to walk across the street in the incorrect way, and the woman would have seen that as proof that she had bad. She just makes bad decisions all the time. You know what? Sometimes you say screw it. This person's here, and he's a devil. This is what he does. He, devil's tempt. <laughs> they speak the right words at the right time, and they, they convince you of things. See, my, my mentality is it was the stupidest decision that anybody could have possibly made in the situation, but she's 17, and 17-year-olds do stupid things. I work with teenagers. I see it every day. Exactly. So, <laughs> and, and like That doesn't make it less stupid. It was still the, the dumbest the, thing she could do. The, the dumbest thing in the book was trying to to conjure to to summon an imp to begin with. Yeah, when like where yeah, where does her sister Havilar get off casting any spells? Exactly. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you said like, oh she was well apparently Havilar doesn't know how to cast correctly either. Well right, but Havilar <laughs> is supposed to be the, the impulsive dumb one that does silly things like that. Yeah. And I was really worried throughout the first, like, 
third to half of the book that Havilar was going to end up being turning out to be the bad guy, you know? Yeah, yeah. That she's, you know, that she's the impulsive one and she's just going to get sick of all these people holding her back someday and she's going to be she's going to turn on you. And she never you know, she doesn't, you know? She sticks with she sticks with uh Frida and Mihen and and never takes that turn and actually comes you know at the in the last sort of climactic battle comes up comes in at the last minute and saves the day because she refuses to to follow orders and and abandon her right and i do like the story of what happened on i like how we get a lot of the both sides of the story throughout it um not everywhere but in a lot of places so like so i mean we walk in the first chapter or so of the book and it's you know havilar's there havi's there summoning (laughs) this imp and and we get that side of the story, right? Like how that all happened. And then later on, we found out we find out how how she tried to summon the imp, and Lorkin happened to be there kicking the imp's butt, and uh, says, "Hey, I'll respond to this." And like was was totally about to kill uh, Javi when he he's like, "Oh wait, uh, you're one of those uh, heirs that I'm looking yeah, for." Yeah, the Kakistos or whatever heirs. Yeah. It's, it sounds Greek to me. Yeah, it does. <laughs> okay. Good. It's not just me. Uh, so, yeah. And it's like, hmm, well, this is a little more interesting. And then Ferda wa- walks in. And he's like, now, this is really interesting. And goes on from there. Right. This is really interesting because she's one I can manipulate. I see the weakness in her. Well, he totally could have manipulated Javi, but he, it wouldn't have been fun. Yeah, it wouldn't have been interesting. It almost seemed, Well, I, I think it just would have been more work. No, I, I don't think that at all. I think I think she was too easy. He, he even kind of says that at the beginning. Oh, see, I sort of felt like Havi's a little more bullheaded, you know. She, and, and what's she gonna get out of it? She's not she's not made to be a warlock, right? She's a fighter, right? And so he has a little bit less to offer her. Like she's not, you know. But she wants it more. Havi, that's what. Yeah, that's why they get in the fight with the why she gets in the fight with her sister. I don't think that's what she wants. I think she just wants the attention. No, I know that's what I'm saying. She wants the attention more. She's not as much of a. Uh, in, in that way, she would not be as much of a challenge. Right, to, but but, to Far- but Farida wants the power, and that's what he has to offer. Right, yeah. and that's a challenge. Like the whole thing there is a challenge because she also wants to hem in Lorkin. I don't know if Havi would ever try to hem in Lorkin. Yeah, no, I, I, I think she's a lot weaker willed. Yeah. She's you know, in, in, she's very much a secondary character, which is ironic because, you know, they're twins. And so you kind of expect them to be be working at the same level. Right. But, but as much as the book is called Brimstone Angels, it's really Brimstone Angel. I mean, it's it's about Farida. Right. Uh, and, and Havilar takes a back seat through most of the book at first she's sort of set up as, as competition who might turn into the villain and then she doesn't um but when, when she doesn't she sort of fades further and further into the background except for a few moments where she she appears and, and shines and she has a lot of that uh white knight element to her <laughs> and but like the and then a little bit of the lawful stupid sort of thing like she's not exactly lawful but she's the one that ends up getting uh Possessed by Rohini, I don't uh-huh. know how to, and like putting herself in danger a lot more. I feel I don't know. See, I I feel like she puts herself in danger a lot more, not because she's lawful stupid. I th- I feel like she does it because she's chaotic. No, no, because no. Because she, she doesn't think things through, and she just charges forward without without planning. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I, I see a lot of lawful stupid doing that too, because they just like this is most this is the way it must be. I shall go forward and do this. Well, really yeah, thinking. but usually lawful stupid is, is a synonym for lawful good, right? Where people are doing this because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like Havilar is doing it because it's the right thing to do. She's doing it because she's a thrill seeker. Maybe. I don't think she necessarily cares about the right thing to do. <laughs> you know, she she's doing it. Uh, oftentimes she's doing it for her. Yeah, I can I, see that. I, I certainly wouldn't characterize Havilar as good. Oh, no, I'm, not, I'm just saying that she had a lot of elements of that, not necessarily that she was that. Okay. That she reminds me a lot of the the white 
the knight in shining armor sort mm-hmm. of thing because she always shows up at the time uh, other than the time when she's possessed it seems like she just she tends to show up just mm-hmm. when you need her uh glaive the most right <laughs> she, she is the one that, that continuously shows up at the last minute and saves the day yeah even but when it, even when it's not her even when she was possessed by rohini Right. You know, uh, Farida was about to be sacrificed and Havilar shows up. Only it's not really Havilar, it's Rohini and Havilar's body. And sh- but she still shows up and saves the day. Yeah. And then, I, and then Farida knocks her out with one, with one shot. Yeah, because, you know, magic <laughs> is more, is better than... <laughs> Talk about game ba- imbalance, jeez. I know, seriously. Are these people I- leveled equally or what? Tam has got to be at least ten levels higher than everybody else. He summoned a temple. I know, and, <laughs> and it, was was, kind of, it was kind of badass, but it was, and it was kind of it was kind of cool that the um, statue looked like the twins. Yeah, how did they not notice that? They were in the temple and looking at the statue. How did they not notice that it looked like them? So here's the thing: did the statue actually look like them, or did it appear to them to t- appear like them to Tam and Bryn? But if it's if it's something that tailors itself to each person, why would it appear that way the same to both of them? Like Tam had no no stake in them. At least you know Bryn had a thing for for him or whatever. But unless it was assigned to both of them that that the those the, two girls were important. More important. Yeah, I suppose. But I don't know. We I guess we should have asked Aaron about that. Yeah. Well. Oh well. I'll ask her on Twitter later. Okay. <laughs> Very good. All right. So what else? I like I like stories with, about devils. Yeah, I like one of the, one of my favorite things in in fantasy is and in, in sort of D and D storytelling, whether it's novels or or through gameplay, is stories about devils and stories about gods. Right. Uh, and this book heavily talks about deals with stories about devils and doesn't avoid stories about gods. Right. So it had a lot, of, a lot of uh, good groundwork laid. See, I, I and I really liked um, that the devils and the succubus and stuff seemed to have a bit more to them, like more dimension to them than I've seen in other books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't read a ton of books, so I can't say like no other books were ever like this. Sure. But uh, but there seemed to be a lot more nuance there. Well, yeah, um, I mean, there's two approaches that people take towards devils and demons and that kind of stuff. And it's true in games as well. You know, they're either the nameless horde there to fight mm-hmm. or they can become characters, right? Where right. And Aaron definitely seemed to, to go out of her way to, to make all of the devils matter. Like there's very, other than like what a few imps and maybe a barb devil, um, there's very few devils in here that aren't named characters, you know, they're full fleshed NPCs, if you will. Right. Yeah, there's some some of the uh, thirteen we don't meet, but we do meet a number of them, and they have their own personalities. Well, and and I sort of feel like even beyond that, like we we've, we've met this group of sort of the elite uh, ironies, mm-hmm. which is not how she pronounced it, but that's how I've always pronounced it. Um. So yeah, you've got this elite gr- group of ironies, and so this group sort of acts as a character, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So I, I, I sort of felt like we could get away with not knowing each and every one of the 13 because we knew them as a group. Right. And it's pretty crazy some of the uh, encounters that uh, <laughs> that the Brimstone twins have or, or like the Brimstone angels and, and stuff have. Like they fight the wasps. The, the hell wasps? Yeah. Or hornets or whatever they are, which are crazy. And I can't remember where I've come across them before, but I swear I've read them in another novel. Um, I haven't, not that I can think of. Yeah, I can't remember. Um, and then they fight some ironies, even though they're not the worst ones, but whatever, like, theoretically, these, they're at what, most level three? (laughs) Well, I see, I don't know. I I feel like, you know, obviously Meehan is is a higher level. Right. Um, I, I, I sort of felt like they... Everybody started at a decently high level, or at least Meehan and Havilar started at a decent level, right? Maybe five, six, seven. Um, you know, they were both – they were decently skilled. They knew what they were doing, all that kind of stuff. Meehan maybe a little bit higher. Um, I felt like Farida started out lower. Yeah. Because, you know, she, she opens – the book opens with her making her pact. So, you know, okay, boom, you're level one, you know? 
But then they fast forward and they've been running bounties and doing all this kind of stuff. And it's she's, only been six months. Uh, all right, but she, you've played the game, right? In game terms, you can go up twenty levels in in two months, <laughs> depending on you know how the adventures are played out. Oh, I know, but I mean, I'm just saying. Most of that time, she wasn't. Other than whatever Lorkin was giving her, I don't well, know. If she. Well, that's what I sort of felt like is that they actually played out a whole scene where Lorcan shows up and says, hey, you know, I have this new power. You want to check this one out? And, and he teaches right. it to her. So they can sort of hand wave a little bit of, well, he just front loaded her with a bunch of powers. So she's the equivalent of oh, yeah. an equal level as, as the others. I'm just saying that I think the the wasps and the Ernies and stuff are definitely Paragon. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, sure. <laughs> I mean – Para- so, Paragon tier is all about the planes, and so a lot of the planar threats, right, are so, going to be Paragon tier. So, and and I think I still think that even Main and uh, the the twins are heroic tier. I don't think they're Paragon tier. Yeah, I, I'd maybe put he and Mehan might be low Paragon, a high heroic. I right. th- but I think Tam is the is the only one that's probably sitting in Paragon tier. Because uh, well, and the other thing is that nothing in any of the fight scenes with Mian. Uh, made me feel like he had a, a lot other than just good training. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's what's coloring it for me. But these are novels and not games. Although it is. it's a lot easier to, to think of it in game terms sometimes. Well, and, with this book for some reason. And, w- and when you have a setting where it's a game and novels, mm-hmm. there's a natural crossover, right? You, you want to be able to... In order for, for these books to make sense in the world that I run my games... And it's all supposed to be the same world. Then there is some game overlap there that right. that I think is, is appropriate to do. Okay, well there we've exhausted that. <laughs> we've exhausted that. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> any any other thoughts on the book? Um, I don't know. I still like it. I love it. Well, I, I'm not trying to convince you not to like it. I also liked it. No, no, I know. I just I, I think I liked it a lot of it because we've been reading reading a lot of books that I didn't really necessarily connect with other than Godcatcher, so it was nice to, to read a book that had a lot more of my perspective in it, sort of thing. But I don't know how that went over like if you notice any difference or if those were the parts you didn't like or <laughs> Now I'm curious, what does it take to to uh have your perspective in it outside of having a female protagonist. Well, I think <laughs> having the female protagonist was a big thing, but also uh, when I read about relationships and sex in a lot of the other books, it just seems like it's been written by a guy when usually when the author is male. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it seems like it's written by a guy because it's written by a guy. I right, right, right. <laughs> but, and so I like, there's just little changes like, the number of books in which I read where the women spoon over the, uh, the the good character, like the knight character or whatever, mm-hmm. even if he's not necessarily that great great of a knight, um, like Shadowbane is sometimes he just he's too protective to me, mm-hmm. and, that, and that was one thing I really liked about uh, about Lorcan and a f- other than me and a few of the other, like Bryn also, the tw- the twins are who they are. And, like, Lurkin will sometimes help, but also gives uh, Ferda room to, to be her own person, too, and try. Sure, but that's not because he's trying to give her wings to fly. It's because he's trying to manipulate her. No, I know, but I, I'm just saying <laughs> so. that I, I like having more characters like that, regardless of their motivations. I understand. So what you're saying is you're a big fan of relationships where the girl goes for the, ba- the bad boy. doesn't have to be a bad boy. It's <laughs> not what I'm hearing. <laughs> Well, no. It just happens to be that most of the time when we write the characters, it's the bad boy that does it. But you don't. Because, but you don't want. But you we, don't want them to fall for the, the for the good guy. I don't want the good guy to be like the good guy. I I don't want him to be the person who is always like, "You're not allowed to get yourself hurt," without me trying to kill myself first. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they're too overprotective. Too t- some most of the time for me, I don't like it. <laughs> So it's 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 not the the good guy versus the the bad guy. It's the protective the overprotectiveness that right. that you don't like. Yeah, I suppose that's fair. And I'm trying to think think about some of the books that we've read uh, to sort of see where that fits in. Shadowbane is definitely overprotective, and that's a theme of that book. 
Um, and I go back to Erevis Kale, and he's very protective, but that's... I think there's that, hardly any women I, in I, I think that, yeah, as I was gonna say, I think that's more of a function of that female characters in general are secondary to the whole story, you know? So. And then in Arya Salvatore's books, the... He's not necessarily overprotective, but we don't... I, I just feel like at the same time, the female character often gets overshadowed. Um, and I'm trying to remember the book now where it was like... We read uh, Neverwinter. Yeah, Neverwinter. But I'm trying to remember if it's uh, Ed Greenwood's book where the oh. women are always uh, in robes or something and have to get dragged out at the last possible second. Uh, what book did uh, we read? His Oh, what was his latest book? I feel like that was the one that had that because there's a scene in the palace. The one where with Mistra coming back. I think so. Yeah. Uh, Bury him deep. Was it Bury Elminster deep? Bury Elminster deep. Yeah. That's not a big deal. I just I, I like it when the female characters have a little more room to. Be. And so the thing is, is like it's definitely um, not only are the the yeah, two main we did, characters. We did, we did read that book. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sorry. Not only- not only are there distracted. two main characters women, but the the most of the main character, like both sides, good and evil, or whatever you want to call it, are are uh, women. It's a very woman heavy book. It is a very woman heavy book, and I think that's what I really love about it. Okay. So, in order to win over Tracy, you just have to write books no. with lots of women in it. I understand. Well, I mean, I like other books, too. <laughs> but if you want to stand out, <laughs> a, a book with a lot of women in it will definitely stand out. Understood. So when I write my great novel, it's just going to be all kinds of women. And I... Oh, we didn't talk about it in with Erin. But she talks about the chainmail bikini in there. Yes, yeah, she does. She brings up the issue of the chainmail bikini. And it was awesome. It was it, that was kind of a, a really cool uh, meta moment there, wasn't it? It totally was. And I, I, I asked her on Twitter about it. I was like, because I wasn't entire. I was pretty sure she meant chainmail bikini, but I was like, well, maybe she was. She well, didn't need that. and even if it wasn't chainmail bikini, so to speak, it, it was certainly the the scantily clad armor. You know? Yeah, and it's so cool because it's. Um, I have a lot of that wants it, right? Yeah. Because she's 17. Of course she wants like, – She's and she's in a town where people – she's actually allowed to walk – she could potentially walk around without a cloak on and people might actually be attracted to her. And she's like, I want a chainmail bikini. And her father's like, no. <laughs> that is for people who want to play at being adventurers, not actual adventurers. Yeah. And he and he goes through all the list of reasons like why this wouldn't work. This is this, this is how wearing this is going to get you killed. It's gonna puncture your lung and or like it's easy to puncture your lung in it or none of your vital organs are protected. And she gives all the classic excuses of why it's an okay. But I can move faster, and I, <laughs> it's just great. Well, and 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 the the shop owner was even like, oh yeah, that's a very popular model. I forget who makes it, but we we sell a lot of them, you know. Yeah, it's the um, cunning fox model, and I I told Aaron that uh, it must come with a tail from now on. Needs a little fox tail with it. (laughs) (laughs) No, it doesn't. Why not? (laughs) Because that. Scantily clad adventurers doesn't necessarily mean furries. No, but like the Playboy Bunny, but now it's Cunning (laughs) Fox. Come on. It writes itself. Uh If it wrote wrote itself, it would have been written that way. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) All right. Uh, Any other thoughts? Any last thoughts on the book? You have any? I did notice that... um, she one of the things that that I look for, and we talked about this in the last book a little bit too. Um, in a in a realms book, I look to see if they're actually using realms language. Mm-hmm. You know, there are certain um, you know uh, slang terms and whatever. And and I know and I talked about it with uh, Shadowbane because Eric uses it you know pretty heavily throughout. Right, you see a lot. Eric of the, uses it in real life, right? <laughs> I, he, I, I probably, um, but. I, and I noticed that Aaron also mm-hmm. used it, but I saw it less and less as time went on. You know, uh, in or like in the first few chapters, she used you know she threw out a couple of Tuluans or whatever. 
you know? Right. And then slowly over time, and she mixed it, right? There was a little bit of Forgotten Realms slang and there was a little bit of the, what I assume is draconic, right? Because mm-hmm. Meehan has taught the tieflings how to swear basically in draconic and so they're, they're always swearing in dra- draconic. And so you get a little it's bit... It's very blue apparently because uh, we're told that at one point. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, and so you get sort of a mix of that. As by the time you get to the end of the book, though, it's you still have just as much draconic, and then the rest of it's just just English, you know. Uh, and, and you've lost a lot of those, those other swear words, which which is fine as a reader. Although sometimes I I like to read, be able to read, take my books with me to school and read. And if it's full of um, real world English language profanity. <laughs> I have to be careful about who's looking over my shoulder, you know, and I, I certainly can't lend, lend a book out to a student if it's got that kind of stuff in it. So sometimes I wish we could do more of the kind of cheesy fake forgotten realms cursing <laughs> because then I could theoretically lend them out. Although this one is a, maybe a little too sexy to give to a, a seventh grader, but still. You say that now. Well, I, I, I did not say it's too sexy for a seventh grader to read. No, I know. It's, it's too sexy for the teacher to give to a seventh grader. No, I, and I, I totally agree. <laughs> because I read these kinds of books when I was in seventh grade, but... That's where you just put it in the library. <laughs> yeah, that would go over well, too. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, no, I, I felt... I, I sort of applauded her, her um, utilizing... Mm-hmm. That that kind of language, um, but but I noticed it wasn't consistent, right? It started out high and then and then sort of transitioned over time, right? So yeah, which, I, I can see that. Which is which is still b- better effort than everybody I've read that writes in the Forgotten Realms, with the exception of Eric and Ed, who created all those those words to begin with, <laughs> and Ed maybe overuses it, you know? <laughs> so right, yeah, I, I think I think I definitely. Uh can see can recall that kind of happening in the book uh she, she does use draconic pretty pretty well throughout i think yeah. although lorkin doesn't lorkin just uses english and, yeah and swears a lot in, in english i like i like when um the the i think it's Javi asks man if he's okay but asks it in draconic it's because uh they're with the with rohini mm-hmm and Rohini doesn't, I guess, doesn't know Draconic. So. Or, or at least they were assuming she doesn't. Yeah. That was pretty cool. And I did, and I, I know I mentioned this with Aaron, but I did feel that, uh, I, and I can't tell if it's just me having read more books now, or if or if this book, it felt like I understood the, the Ashmedai and stuff a lot more, to the point where I might even use it in a game. So that that was cool. And I do wonder if that had a little bit to do with the fact that they were developing the Neverwinter campaign guide while she was writing the novel. Yeah, yeah, that, that could be. So there was a lot, it was a lot more in their, in their minds to mm-hmm. include a lot of information and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Okay, good. Cool. Well, should we, uh, toss it off to, uh, us talking to Aaron? Definitely. All right. Tracy introduces to Aaron. And now we're here with Erin M. Evans, author of Brimstone Angels. Welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Totally. I love having you on, so. Tracy's a big fan of yours. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> All my tweets today, you know, didn't already tell you that. <laughs> I wasn't sure. <laughs> Right on. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about your, um, from your perspective, what is Brimstone Angels all about? Um, so, kind of similar to the way I did the God Catcher, I had two two answers. <laughs> um, on the one hand, I think it's about um, sort of control over your life and and what you do to get control. Um, the main character is a young woman who is sort of constrained by her race and her upbringing and um, doesn't feel like she has a lot of options. So she takes a, an infernal pact sort of by accident, but you know, it's kind of, she kind of wanted it um, to, with a, with a, a cambion. Um, and while that just throws her life into chaos, suddenly she has this, you know, ability to do something and it takes her 
um, to Neverwinter and through all these schemes. Um, but with her and with all the characters around her, it's, it's really about, you know, the way you kind of feel out of control in your life and what you do to sort of regain that control, even when it's things that aren't going to make any sense, like trying to make somebody else do something. Um, and then on the other hand, it's about devils. So. And I'm a big fan of devil stories, so you got you got me hooked pretty early on that. Oh, good. I got really into. I mean, I, I I've always liked them. I think they're really kind of interesting. The way, and I really like sort of the difference between devils and demons. Um, like n- normally, I'm not a huge fan of things that rest on on just on alignment. But I think in this case, it, it I think it makes it really interesting, right? There's this mm-hmm. polarity that's um, within what you'd say, oh, they're evil, right? But then there's two different kinds of evil, and they don't necessarily like each other. Um, so, yeah, the, the Fiendish Codex, too, is one of my, one of my favorite source books. <laughs> so talk, talk a little bit about using some of that, because it, it seems like you steeped a lot of um, a lot of D&D devil and demon sort of lore into the into your book and i'm kind of i'm kind of curious where where you got some of that from and and how you developed that was was some of that yours and some of that something that you got somewhere else yeah so uh when i started i you know i had the idea for the cambion and um i wanted to put make him someone came from malbolge because i love glacia i think you look at her whole history and she's sort of poised to be just a super badass um and uh, so when I was coming up with what sort of devils to tie into that, you know, I, I landed on the idea of a succubus. Um, and I'd also been looking at the Arrhenias because the fourth edition Arrhenias are really different, right? Um, sort of previously, they they kind of had a similar look to succubuses. They had a sort of similar MO. And then you got into discussions about how succubuses and Arrhenias were different. That was one of those times where it got a little bit fiddly, like, well, you know, Succubus seduce people like this, and Rhenia seduce people like that. And it's like, well, okay, but there's still sexy women with wings seducing people. Um, and the new Rhenias were sort of big and monstrous and, and kind of terrifying. And I, I loved them. Um, but I was thinking about it, and, you know, because fourth edition took the succubuses, uh, they, they stopped being demons and they, they sort of switched sides and came over to the hells. Um, and that was something I'd seen a lot of people kind of go, oh, my gosh, what? why would you do that? That's so confusing. Um, and I was like, wow, what, what would happen, right? Because especially with regards to Arrhenius, the Arrhenius and the Succubi were, you know, polar opposites. They hate each other. And so I took them and, and made it sort of a an issue where basically, you know, your your boss says, Okay, these people who are your, your, your commanding officer, I guess, says, these enemies, agents are coming over to our side, play nice. And also, you're going to get more power, but now you're ugly um, and you don't get wings. So they're they're on the same side nominally, nominally but they, they really don't like each other at all. Um, and so I have uh, Succubus Rahini is one of the main villains of the book, but she's working with... Uh, or really for an Arrhenius and, and a lot of the tension between the two races is uh, two types of devils is um, kind of has a tendency to complicate things. Um, so I put, I sort of put that element of it in there, mm-hmm. um, but it was sort of, it was already set up. So, so you, I, it just needed to be filled out. Yeah. So you sort of got to create the canon that explained how, how, how it all happened that succubus is switched from demons to devils. Sort of. I mean, a lot of that, um, I think a lot of the original switching uh, is sort of touched on in Thomas Reed's Imperian Odyssey. Um, But I definitely got to handle the aftermath. Um, And there's a lot of, uh, there's times where they talk about, you know, what happened and and, and how it affected things. There's sort of rumors and and there's points where some devils will say that succubi dissecting and coming over, well, that's what gave Asmodeus enough power to absorb um, as as this godhood. Um, And and then other people say it's something else. So play with this idea of of the hell's being, well, kind of gossipy, um, because everybody's, you know, trying to outmaneuver each other. Um, So having this sense of importance is going to give the succubi a little more Leverage. Right on. Tracy, I don't want to hog all of the questions. Go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say, I, I really liked how the, how, uh, Rohini? Yes. I, 
how she, uh, she was done in the book. I think it was like one of the first times that I came across a succubus that I actually enjoyed reading about. It, like, seemed had a lot more depth to her than than I'm used to. So I like that. Thanks. I that was something I feel like. It's really easy to take a succubus and just go, oh, they're really, really sexy women and they will seduce you and that's how they get you. But I think that kind of, it kind of sells a lot of male characters short. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, guys don't like sex, but I don't think you're going to, um, you know, go do ridiculously dangerous things just to have sex. You know, that might be the idea, but... Right. I, I think I don't think guys really operate like that. So this idea that the succubus, no, that's a that's one of the tools in her box. But she's, ha ha ha. Um, but she's, uh, you know, she's got more of a, a technique than that, right? She's she's going to try to figure out a way to seduce someone in a much bigger sense and really get into their head. Yeah. Well, and it was great because the uh, oh, what's his name? Sar- Sartan is it? Um. The priest. Barton? Barton, that's it, sorry. Yeah. Uh, gives her gives her a box and has her open it and kind of basically uh, tricks her in a way, right? Because yeah. she has basically written him off as <laughs> somebody completely under her control and doesn't really have a great thought on his own. And voila! <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's like, you know, she's not thinking much of the Adelastic Sovereignty until that point, and then it's too late. <laughs> Um, that was kind of a fun part because I, um, you know, I had written an outline and I had, I would wanted the, the balance to shift there so that she becomes an agent of the Abolistic Sovereignty, which was, you know, tied into what Cryptic was doing with their, um, their MMO. Um, and, but I had, and honestly, right now, I don't remember what I had originally pitched, but when they were working on the Neverwinter campaign guide, um, I, you know, I said, I want some sort of an artifact. And the hex locus was actually something that was created for the campaign guide. So I kind of got to work with yeah. them at the same time and, and hone it into this, you know, this box that contains um, a piece of spell plague, basically. And that, that brings up a, a question I, I had is um, there's a lot going on in Neverwinter these days. Uh, and and a lot of people sort of playing in that in that setting you know whether it be the Mm -hmm. the campaign guide or salvatore or the encounter season and all that and i'm kind of curious what what do you do or how did how did you work to sort of make everything fit in and how what kind of information did you have and how much did you sort of get to set that pace and you know where does where does this story sort of fit into all of that well, the first thing that came along was Cryptic's MMO. Um, obviously, they have a lot longer lead time. So, um, and then around the same time that was being developed, um, Bob Salvatore was brought in to do his trilogy. Um, and then I was tapped to do a book as well. But I waited until I had uh, Cryptic's story bible um, and looked for things to tie in there. And actually, it was... Um, what I wanted, what I wanted to do, there was a character in there called the South Bond Prophet, and there was connections to the Abolistic Sovereignty, and there was a connection from the Abolistic Sovereignty to Asmodeus. So I'm like, I want this. Um, and at the time, the South Bond Prophet was a man, and so I wanted my succubus to be there to seduce him, and then he would turn around and, and get her. But then, um, after I turned in my outline, they said, "What, what is this? Because the South Bond Prophet's a woman." I'm like, wait, whoa, whoa, when did that happen? <laughs> like, oh, we changed it. Um, and I said, oh, okay, so so here's the options. I can have her seduce an assistant. I can have it be a woman. because I can write a lesbian seduction. Um, or perhaps my succubus could be the person who becomes the Falcon Prophet. And they're like, oh, we like that one. Let's do that one. Um, and then after I had started writing, well, Wizards decided to do the campaign guide. So they went to work um, with my outline in hand. And then when they were going through it, uh, my editor fed the chapters back to me. And, you know, I sent back notes here and there. Like, um, like you know, the, the, the Rohini's kind of different for Succubus. And it was, I think it was kind of important not to portray her as someone who's really obviously sexy. Like she, she's sexy in a way that, that doesn't, it's not scattershot. She's aiming at certain people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, kind of toning down that language or um, there was 
you know, there were some, some changes. Arunica was a, a later addition to match with Bob's book. Mm-hmm. Um, so that got added in a little later. So there was a little bit of back and forth between me and the campaign, my book and the campaign guide. Um, and the, the encounter season, I, you know, I didn't get any, to, to give any feedback to that. So I'm assuming they pulled um, from after, you know. Right on. So if I want to sort of get as much bang for my buck as if I'm reading this this story, what other sort of things should I read to tie into? I mean, you mentioned that Arunica is tied into Salvatore's um, series. Um, you mentioned that a lot of, you know, the what happens to Rohini sort of is a, a tale that dovetails right into the MMO. Yes. You know, but... but it, and, well, the, um, I think, I think Rohini might... I don't know if she fits into the MMO or if she's going to fit into an expansion now. I'm not sure. Okay. But she's uh, she's actually started as a, a villain in um, the Neverwinter Campaign Guide. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's uh, – the, the time there's a bit of a time difference. It's, I think, eight months uh, ahead of, of the sort of presence of Forgotten Realms, which is 1479. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's had a little time to get comfortable and, and get some some – uh, minions. Sure. <laughs> so that this is, that's I think that's the most direct um, connection to the MMO definitely. And um, yeah, there's uh, Brother Anthus is a character that I had for Rohini to um, kind of mess up with. She she was originally her target. He turned out to be a little more savvy. She sort of lost her temper and killed him. Um, so then she ends up with Brother Vartan, who she doesn't have as much time to work with. Um, and he and then her sister, Lunica, were being characters in um, Bob Salvatore's Neverwinter trilogy. So those connections are there, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but honestly, you don't have to read all of this to, to get Brimstone Angels, but it definitely is a little more if you if you pull in all those other pieces. Sure. No, it's, it's, it's very – there's a lot of lore used, um, but a, a lot of that lore I, – I, I was either – I'm either not familiar with or it's been a while, you know, like I, ne- I didn't yeah. play through the encounters. I read Salvatore's books, but it's been a while, you know, um, you know, the last uh, in the series from, from him and Neverwinter didn't really go to Neverwinter much, um, you know, and so it's been a while since I've sort of been in Neverwinter, you know, and, and yeah. yet I still sort of felt like I knew what was going on and, and those, okay. <laughs> and, and, and if nothing else, there were places where I'm like, oh, I feel like there's something going on here that there's a connection here to the larger world. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, so if I wanted to find, you know, like Rohini, that name is like stood out to me. It's like, I've, I've heard of that somewhere before, you know? And so if I wanted to look it up, I could find out a little more about her. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the campaign guide, the Neverwinter campaign guide, it's, I think probably the best place to, to look for more of that. It's, it's chock full of, of, interesting threats and, and complications and, and NPCs um, that you can use in a game or just find a little more out about. Well, I, and I, I can't tell if it's that I've read enough novels now or did something more uh, object, objectively true about the book, but I, I wasn't as lost in this one. Like I wasn't really lost in the God catcher, but it, it it didn't necessarily feel to me when I read that that it was as steeped in realms lore as as this book. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one, like, I think this is the first time I really started to understand with who the Ajmadai were, and and some other things. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's definitely it's more um, it's more dense. With um, Godcatcher was really. A meant, meant to be an entry point. So mm-hmm. we were told, in certain terms, don't go crazy. You know, you don't, you want someone who's never read the Forgotten Realms to sort of pick this up and be able to follow along. Um, and for instance, I got a lot more leeway, um, which was good because there's a lot more, <laughs> a lot more lore that gets into Neverwinter. Um, oh, definitely. I felt like it was a it was a good introduction still for me for Neverwinter, but maybe maybe it helps to have the other books. Oh, a few of the other books first, but Possibly. I didn't get and lost it, in this. <laughs> but definitely, I, you know, it was another thing where I, I still like to keep in mind people who aren't as familiar coming mm-hmm. in. Um, so I, I definitely still tried to keep a sense of, of making 
all these pieces feel clear. I'm a little fortunate in that I picked um, Farida and Havel are, are um, they're raised by, dra- by Dragonborn kind of off the beaten path. So they don't have a lot of the cultural knowledge that other characters would. Like they have almost no religious upbringing. So anytime I have to kind of bring up something about the gods, it's not impossible for me to say, oh, for Havilar to be like, yeah, we're Chiman there and we don't know. Um, or, uh, you know, things like how it's, how this is done in Waterdeep or, um, Cormier or whatever. Um, right. so they're kind of handy that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, one of my favorite books, was, uh, favorite parts of the book was when they first enter uh, Neverwinter and they're able to they're, take their cloaks off and, and people look at them, but not any differently than you would look at a pretty teenage girl walking down the street. Like, mm-hmm. it, it yeah. wasn't this, oh my God, you oh. must cover up right now sort of thing. Yeah. Um, that was something... Um, when they were first talking about the MMO and what, the, what kind of player options they wanted, I mentioned that I was going to do this book on tieflings, and so it would be really nice if that was one of the player options. Um, and so they got behind that and like that. And I'm like, you know, actually, when you look at the world, you know, tieflings aren't that numerous, and I don't think that they necessarily should be. Um, so seeing a tiefling, and especially the fourth edition tieflings, who, you know, they're really obvious. Um, yeah. And uh, and so you see someone who looks like that, your your first reaction is probably not going to be good. <laughs> so um, the idea that Neverwinter is this place where you do have a lot more tieflings because it's kind of it's kind of become like a frontier. It's you know it's it's a town that's got um, a lot of opportunity to come from the ground up. That you know this is a place where it's not that weird to be a tiefling. Um, and, and although part it, of that is the Ashford I are really right. entrenched, so the bad tieflings are there. <laughs> I was going to say, and it's got connections to, to devils all over the place. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of ironic because, you know, you sort of establish that, you know, they have to hide who they are in a lot of places. And that's unfortunate that people can't just sort of accept who they are because, you know, mm-hmm. anybody who looks at them is going to say, oh, well, clearly they're associated with devils and demons and things. And then it turns out, well, you know what? She kind of is. So, yes. <laughs> so maybe, maybe they're right to shun her, you know? No, they're not. It's never right to shun someone. <laughs> and Lorcan's a... Somewhat decent fellow. Uh-huh. He's complicated. He's he very definitely. complicated. Yeah. And my hope is, like, I my hope is that you know you start out and you're like, no, bad news, bad guy. Um, and by the end, you're kind of like, okay, I don't know if he can be redeemed, but I want him to be redeemed. Yeah. Because um, I mean, you feel kind of feel for him. He never really had a chance. Um, and he is half human. There's always hope, right? Yes, there's actually, I, you know, I originally, there's a scene in the book where Farida goes to uh, find the temple that um, one of her traveling companions has actually um, created with a ritual. And originally, um, when she went in there, he found her and they had this conversation that I cut because it, it ended up being sort of misplaced. But, you know, he, she, she's sort of like, I'm doomed anyway. I have this fiendish blood and everybody keeps pointing out I'm just going to end up, you know, damned no matter what. And uh, he points out, you know, you might have this part of you that's a devil, but you, you have all this other part of you that's not. And if this part of you is doomed, then the rest of you, you know, you have to fight that much harder to save it. You can't just throw it away because, you know, something you didn't ask for. And then she turns around and points out to him, if that's true about me, that's true about Lorcan too. So telling me to just leave him to the wolves, that's, you know, I, I can't get behind that. Um, and I, it's not in the book anymore because it it was just too talky and didn't fit. But I think that's still true that, you know, she can see herself in him in a lot of ways. Um, he's obviously coming from a much more disadvantaged position when it comes to that. But, um, you know, there's – I think she has a hope that, that he's – he can be redeemed, um, right. although he definitely challenges that on a regular I, basis. <laughs> and, I, and I see that by the end. Now, I find that, that Farida is also uh, – and, and especially her relationship with Lorcan is, is interesting and, and very complex. Um, you know, By the end, she, the tables have turned. She's in a little bit more control of the situation. She's, you know, she's starting to see glimmers of hope in him and all that. Uh, but in the beginning, like chapter one, she's introduced as the reasonable one. 
you know, yeah. the, the one who thinks things through. And then immediately after that does the stupidest thing she could possibly do in the whole thing. And that's make a deal with the devil. <laughs> I was that stupid. <laughs> I, I, I'm I think, wondering if you could talk a little bit about that relationship and that decision to get to go into that. Yeah. Well, I think part of it is this idea. I mean, I don't know if you guys have siblings or if you've had this experience, but growing up, I had two sisters. I'm mean, growing up. There's this really strong tendency to take on this identity as, you know, the reasonable one or, um, my sister, not even that long ago, I had a conversation and she was talking about how she needed to buy eye cream and it was really depressing her. And I'm like, everybody gets to the point where you start to get wrinkled. It's not a big deal. She goes, no, you don't understand. I'm the pretty one. I was like, okay, what? <laughs> she goes, no, no, that's okay. You're the smart one. So, I mean, like you hold on to these things. And um, I found if I, if I might talk about this a lot of times to people who've had siblings, especially ones who are close in age, you know, they have the same kind of story. It's like, Oh yeah, my my brother's the runner. Never mind, this guy runs three miles a day. His brother runs ten, so he's the runner. Um, that you kind of get this identity that's based a lot on what your sibling does. So yeah. Farida's the reasonable one because Havilar is the one who kind of goes, "Oh, I found this scroll. Let's see what it does." Um, but you know, she does do end up doing this thing that's really impulsive when you get down to it, and not you know, not thinking about the the ramifications of it but from where she is at the beginning of the book you know she's 17 right and and at 17 most of us feel like the, you know the whole world is our oyster you know oh we can do anything but she's probably in this tiny tiny little town that's full of people who have kind of rejected the world around them and a lot of them are, are tieflings who kind of hate themselves right they don't they kind of agree with what the people say about tieflings like no no you know, nobody's going to trust us because we have this fiendish blood. And, and they treat Farida like, you know, any day now she's going to turn out to be evil. Um, and aside from this, taking this pact, she's really quite a moral character. I mean, she really worries about taking care of people and making sure that, you know, she does the right thing um, and stops the bad things from happening. But at that point where she meets Lorcan, she's, you know, she's just gone through another one of these conversations where it's clear nobody trusts her, um, even though she is the one who's keeping Havilar from, you know, going off the deep end and doing something dangerous. Um, and basically Lorcan says all the right things, you know, mm -hmm. that this, if you have this power, if you take this power, you can make sure that nothing bad ever happens to your sister. If you take this power, you can make sure that all those scary things that your neighbors talk about, that, you know, paladins on horseback and, and, you know, raiders in the mountains and, and, you know, all these ways that you, all these reasons you need to stay in this tiny little town because this, the big world is scary. You can stop that from happening. You can protect people from that. And, you know, he, he tells her everything she wants to hear. Um, so, you know, from a distance, it's, it is kind of a rash decision, but, you know, she really in that moment, you know, there's not, there's nobody holding a gun to her head, but she's just out of options. You know, it's, she, she, at that point in her life, she's like, okay, I'm just going to live in this nothing little town alone. I mean, there's not enough, she's, if she stays in Arashvayam, she's going to basically be a spinster with her sister forever and possibly, you know, become the village midwife's trainee and be miserable. Or she can go off and, and protect people and, and do things. Um, so it's, maybe it's a little stupid from a distance, but I don't think from her perspective she could do anything else. Well, and I mean, I kind of right away, uh, missing the word, but uh, connected with that. Because, I mean, I grew up, I was the I was the the nice person who always like never said anything wrong and uh, never t told off-color jokes and stuff. And it's just so constraining because I mean, almost everyone is three-dimensional in some way and have like a two-dimensional mm -hmm. label applied to you. And if like that constant feeling that you have to live up to that label can be really annoying. It makes you a little crazy. And then the first time you don't live up to that label, it's, it, it kind of, it's kind of, you know, core shaking. Right. And she's 17 and she's never been with a boy. And <laughs> you can make a lot of stupid decisions when your libido's involved. <laughs> yeah. But, and that's one of the things I liked about the book that I often don't get from, from books, particularly ones written by male authors, nothing, nothing against them, but they don't understand that part of 
it a lot of times. Like, because we're always told, like, 17-year-old girls are so nice and pretty and they would never do anything that their fathers wouldn't approve of. Yeah, I never, you know, when people talk about, you know, how teenage boys are, are such horn dogs, I'm like, yeah, and teenage girls are quite horn dogs, too. We just have, a, you know, a different set of, of risks to consider. Um, but, yeah, I don't, I think 17, you're, you're thinking about sex a lot. <laughs> I guess I don't have the perspective of having been a 17-year-old girl. This is true. We'll tell you right now. 17-year-old girls think about sex a lot. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble now for saying that, but yeah. <laughs> I'm sure not every 17-year-old girl, just like I don't think every 17-year-old boy is really thinking about sex all the time. Um, but, I don't know, you know about that. Just variety. <laughs> I'm sure there's some guy out there who's going, thank you for saying that. <laughs> there's plenty of guys going, she doesn't know what she's talking about, but. Yeah. I'm sure there's one or two. Talk to me about names. About I mean, names. About names. How you came up with names for people and, <laughs> and all that. Some of them I, I thought flowed really well. And f- the Frida, uh, I just had a heck of a time figuring out how the heck I was going to, you know, how I was going to pronounce that name. It was something that my brain really munched on for about half the book before I just let it flow. You know, honestly, I, it's interesting because I, I feel like this is the peril of fantasy names. That a lot of times you pick a name, and in your head it's pronounced one way. And then, people, like my mother was at, was reading the book, and she asked um, some question about Faraday, and I'm like, "What are you talking about? Oh, Farida, okay." Um, and you know, having edited fantasy books, it's it's a rampant thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, for some of them, you know, some of them are real world names. Farida is actually a real world name. It's a Persian name. Um, it's I, I, so I kind of got the start of the character idea, and I wrote about this on my blog, so I won't go into a whole bunch of it, but um, from a character I was playing, who was also called Farida, um, and I had pulled that from a, like a names website. It was just, it was pretty, but it wasn't too pretty. It was this kind of nice balance of um, of interesting and, and, and pretty and, and plain. Um, uh, Lorcan's a real name. Um, Mahen is actually the name of a minor Egyptian snake god. <laughs> um, the uh, Rohini I, was one that just popped into my head, and I loved it, and I thought I should look this up. And it turns out it's actually a real name. Um, it's a Hindi name. So, mm-hmm. uh, And Havilar is one that just popped in for her. But um, some, other, some others of them were trickier. Um, one of the lead Ashmedai, whose uh, name is Yvonne, finally, um, went through, like, God, like a dozen names. I had to keep rejecting them because there's so many characters in this book um, with, that are named. And I didn't want to have names that got easily confused. Mm-hmm. Um, I ran into trouble with that, the Godcatcher, because I had this character, Nestrix. And then partway through, I added this character, Nazra, which, which I didn't name her. She was a Ed Greenwood character. And so their names are very similar and it mm-hmm. was like, Oh, I don't want to go back and change the character's name at this point. Um, so I had a list of, of names in alphabetical order and I was trying not to use the same letter and, um, to get the right feel is really tricky. Um, so I, I, when I name characters, sometimes I'm lucky and it just pops in my head. I'm like, that's the right name. Um, sometimes I go through, um, sort of obscure name lists, trying to find something that's real world but sounds sort of pleasantly different to uh, a North American audience. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, you look at, you know, Latin names of, of different animals and plants and you tweak things, you twist them. And I like Wiktionary <laughs> for, for things where I can feel like, okay, I have a basis for this name. Um, the uh, the Ashmedai cult was originally, they all had names that, um, reflected kind of that cult-like thing. Cicada was a based off the word sect. Um, Lector, obviously, and um, Chant. Or not Chant. Mm-hmm. Creed. Who's Creed? Who's going to be Chant? But then I found out Bruce Cardell has a character named Chant, and I didn't want to do that. Um, <laughs> and then uh, and then there was Yvonne, who <laughs> wouldn't be named. Um, so, yeah, so a lot of different techniques. And, it, I mean, I think there's sort of, you, you try to come up with names that sound like, real-world names to people. Um, I really don't care for fantasy names that rely on um, 
letter combinations that don't roll off the tongue um, very well, <laughs> or uh, uh, apostrophes kind of throw me. Like, well, put a space or. You just really don't like Salvatore's work, huh? <laughs> <laughs> He's a good storyteller. He can get away with a lot more. <laughs> very good. So the the story ends in such a way that that it, it's set it's set up to possibly go other places. Is yes. is is there a plan to continue visiting these characters? Yes. Um, in fact, I, right now I have a first draft with the editor of the next book, which is called Lesser Evil. Um, it should come out in I think next November. Um, but at least next fall, next fall winter, um, which it picks up shortly after the end of Burnstone Angels um, and has uh, most of the same characters, some of them cycle out. Um, there's a lot more uh, in that one of Tam, the Silly Night Harper. Uh, oh, good. I like and Tam. And his story. I mean, it's, you know what's funny to me is I, I people – a fair number of people have told me they like him, and I'm always like, really, really? Because the idea that I'm writing a 50 year old man well, I, I just, I almost can't believe it. <laughs> well, he's sort of the 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 figure in the story that kind of has a clue. You know, everybody yeah. else, everybody else is sort of bumbling through, and he actually gets it. You know, this is true. He's sort of Yoda, only you know, <laughs> taller. Yes. And he um, he was actually a character in the first short story I wrote for Wizards, um, The Resurrection Agent, which is in Realms of the Dead. Um, and what happened was I needed a cleric for part of um, for part of Brimstone Angels, and I was like, okay, I can just make up the cleric. I had I did have a, at one point a, a crazy idea to have uh, a sort of pre-spell plague tiefling who could be a cleric, and my editor at the time was like, that's insane. You're never going to pull that off for a little side character. Don't don't even go there. Um, but I was like, okay, if I have to have another character in here, I'll I'll just go back and grab this guy because people related to him, they liked him in that. And where would he be in 15 years? Um, and the answer is working for the Harpers. So are we going to see more of Bryn as well? Because he had this this large he had this arc throughout the whole book. You know, starting with the what he was in the in the prologue and in the epilogue, right? Those are the sort of the, the bookends of, uh, of the whole book, and his story is, is right there, front and center of that. He was in the, the first chapter and the last chapter, yeah. Okay. He, um, yes, there's more Britain. Um, uh, and you know, I always I, I almost hesitate to say this because I haven't gotten notes back from my editor, and there's always a chance she'll say, no, 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 no don't do that here. Um, but you find out what. The extent of Britain's secret is in uh, Lesser Evils. Sure. Um, and he was, you know, he's an interesting character because when I started, I knew when I started that I needed a human to sort of be kind of a gateway for readers. Um, mm-hmm. I think tieflings are perfectly relatable. I think it, you know, you can take this idea of, of looking really kind of frightening and um, translate in a lot of ways to people reacting to you based on what they assume to be true about you. Um, but when you first jump in, it's sometimes kind of hard when the race is really weird. So um, I knew I wanted to have a human character sort of be there to kind of anchor it. Um, and when I first started writing it, I didn't really know him. I didn't really have a good sense of what he wanted and where he wanted to go. Um, but when I went through the second draft, it was like, oh, oh, I get you now. I get you now. Um, and I really like where he ended up. Right on. So... It, would it be too much – would it be re- revealing too much to ask uh, what, what is he? Like if I made him as a character, what, what, what class is he? Is oh, he... that's a good question. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> early on in the book, he just sort of – his class seems to be useless. Yeah. And then... <laughs> <laughs> he, he is – well, so he has been trained um, by holy champions of Torm. So he would be a cleric, um, but he's not really very good at it, and he isn't really he doesn't want to really be a cleric for Torm. He's got conflicted feelings about it. So um, 
there's it, it's a little bit <laughs> a little bit tricksy, um, as the gods in, in FR can be. Um, is he getting his powers from Torm, or is he getting his powers from somebody masquerading as Torm? Um, or, you know, what's going on there? He doesn't really, I don't think he really thinks about it too hard at this point. Um, but yeah, if you were going to stat him, he would be a cleric that rolled really badly. So, like, so the, the start he'd be like an older, like a, like a second edition cleric whose, whose wis- wisdom just isn't high enough. So he's got a fail, a fail <laughs> percentage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good enough. All right. Uh, I think that's all of my questions, Tracy. I can't think of any more questions. All right. I just love the book. <laughs> any anything more? Since we just talked about sort of what you're working on and and where these characters are going and all that, um, we also talked to you several months ago about your your other novel, The Godcatcher. Yeah. And you introduced some characters there who seemed like they had potential for more stories. Is there any plans for that? Um, right now, the book I'm working on for 2013 is all. NDA'd up. Um, okay. My, I mean, I think my main focus is Brimstone Angels right now. Um, so, but what I'm, you know, what I do, and, and I have to admit there's some, I think there's some interesting crossovers there. I think there's, you know, characters that would be, you know, interesting in conflicts, and I don't think Tenora and Frida would get along. I don't think Nestrix and Mahen would get along at all. <laughs> um <laughs> So, you know, well, and, I, and they're both, I don't know. they're both blues, aren't they? Uh, he's blue related. He does breathe lightning. Yes. Um, but he's actually, I feel like the dragonborn, they didn't link him up no. so tightly. I think he, I'm trying to remember what color his scales are. I think he's kind of copper. But in my, yeah. but in my head, I, I link them up. So that's okay. Which is, which is fine because blue is my favorite color of dragon. They're my favorite, too. Because they're the smart ones. You may have guessed. (laughs) (laughs) All right on. Very good. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. And that was our discussion with Aaron M. Evans, author of Brimstone Angels. Well, should we wrap this thing up? Sure. Uh, If you'd like to contact us with any questions, concerns, suggestions. No, don't don't send us concerns. Don't send us concerns. Uh, you can email <laughs> us at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Go over to the forums on gamershavenpodcast.com or call our biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And because we forgot to say it earlier, I do want to say one more time thank you to our sponsor, Gamerati.com, as well as our guest, Aaron M. Evans. So thank them for coming on. And uh, we will have links to them as well as anything else that came up in the show over at over in the show notes at thetomeshow.com. And that has been our Brimstone Angels episode of the Tome Show Book Club. Join us next time as we discuss Deathmark by Robert J. Schwab. Woohoo! I'm not a